episode 44 of the State of the Old Republic podcast was originally recorded on July 3rd, 2017. It's the State of the Old Republic podcast. This week, Game Update 5.3 releases on July 11th. I'll recap some of the features coming in this patch. The forum topic of the week was bolster in PvP. Should it be increased or gotten rid of entirely? I'll share my thoughts on that. And finally this week, things boiled over on the forums as a post about Valkorian's master plan clashed with another topic about feedback and criticism. I'll have the details later in the show. And with that, it's time to make the jump to light speed and check out the State of the Old Republic. Well, welcome to episode 44 of the State of the Old Republic podcast. I'm your host, Ted, and as you heard in the opening, I have another great show lined up for you today. First, as always, let's review some announcements for the Old Republic. And the summer of SWOTOR is here, it's happening, and it is heating up. And here are some of the things happening right now in the Old Republic. The Narshada Nightlife event is still going on and runs through August. Probably going to end with the release of Game Update 5.4, but no date has been announced as of yet. Bounty Contract Week is happening and will end on July 11th. There is a double XP and double Valor event happening that will end on July the 5th, so depending on when you're listening to this, it might be over already. Game Update 5.3 is set to go live on July 11th, and I'll get to that in a minute. The Relics of the Gree event will run from July 11th to the 18th, and there will be a double CXP event that will run from July 18th through the 25th. And after the first CXP event, they increase the baseline CXP so that what we're earning today is similar to what we were running during that first event. So this event should boost the rate at which we earn CXP to something higher than I think we've seen before. So I'm actually starting to save up CXP packs for my alts, and then we'll open them when this this event happens rather than just try and trickle my way way along. So I'm going to save these things and, and get ready for a big boost of CXP on, on several alts when that event uh, goes live on July the 18th. The Rakul Plague Outbreak on Tatooine will run from July 25th through August 1st. And finally, Game Update 5.4 will go live sometime in August. So that's all the announcements that I have. Uh, let's slice the holonet and review the news this week. And so earlier this week, Eric Musco let it slip that Game Update 5.3, Sisters of Carnage, will go live on July 11th. Woohoo! Uh, there are no patch notes or even a consolidated list of features coming in this game update. In fact, there has been a surprising lack of hype and announcements surrounding what is a major update to the game. For game update 5.1 and 5.2, we got early looks and live streams, but for 5.3, things have been very quiet. And I don't know if it's because they're busy working on things in the roadmap or because 5.3 is loaded with class balance changes, some of which are unpopular. Probably a combination of both, but I'm leaning, actually leaning towards the latter. And I think a live stream might have ended up being a little bit too contentious, but who knows? But let's talk about what we know is coming 
in 5.3. And first, there's the Gods of the Machine uh, second encounter. That's uh, the Avella and Esne in story and veteran mode. There's no mention of Tithe Master mode, so we don't know if it's coming in this update or if it's going to maybe be pushed out to game update 5.4 or even later. Now, Avela and Esne are twin sisters, and Tithe is their brother. And this is what the Zakulin devotional text found in the Star Fortresses had to say about Avela. And it reads, Burn all doubt in the fires of Avela, our goddess of passion. The favored daughter stands behind her brother Tithe on every battlefield, radiating grace to the fearless. And her sister Esne is the goddess of envy, and she's not exactly buddy-buddy with her sister. And this is what the Zakulin devotional text had to say about her. Beware the shadows of Esne, goddess of envy and twin of Avela. Forever eclipsed, eclipsed by her sister's incandescence, she will use her venomous tongue to test the fateful and cull the weak. Now, I don't know how much can be gleaned about their abilities from these texts, but it sounds like Esme might be a trash-talking droid. And I think the 11th is going to be a lot of me yelling at the screen going, Look, lady. They nerfed me to the ground, okay? If you had come online a week ago, we'd be having a very different conversation right now. So let's talk about these class balance and those nerfs and buffs because there were some buffs. Now here are the class disciplines uh, receiving changes in 5.3. And under the buff category, we have Madness Sorcerer, Balance Sage, uh, vir- virulence sniper and dirty fighting gunslinger. And they were kind of nerfed a little bit in buff. They were, they were, they were, had a little bit of, of everything. Uh, also buffed were power tech, pyrotech and vanguard plasma tech. And then finally hatred assassin and serenity shadow. And then we had those super nerfs. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if the teaser trailer for game update 5.3 is Chris Hemsworth dressed up as Thor, slamming the mighty Molnir as mercenaries, commandos, sorcerers, and sages march across the screen. So getting nerfed are corruption, sorcerer, seer, sage, arsenal, mercenary, and gunnery, commando, and innovative ordinance, mercenary, and assault specialist, commando. And just to recap, All of the class changes were designed around bringing each discipline up or down to their target DPS, HPS, and DTPS. And DTPS is tanks, it's the damage taken per second. And then they uh, arranged everything into these target groupings. And and here are the target groupings that they, they came up with. And there was melee sustained damage, sustained damage dealers, which are intended to do up to plus 5% of the target DPS. And as far as the classes and disciplines, Updated for 5.3, this would include the Hatred Assassin and Serenity Shadow and the Pyrotech, Powertech, and the Plasmatech Vanguard. And both those were buffed. Uh, then there's this category of Melee Quasi-Burst Damage Dealer, which are intended to do up to plus 2.5% of their target DPS. Uh, no changes for those disciplines this time around. And then there's this Melee Burst slash Range Sustained Damage Dealers, which are designed to be right at the target DPS. And I believe the only ones, uh, let's see, was the Innovative Ordinance Mercenary and Assault Specialist Commandos. And did they do? Yes. And then the Madness Sorcerer and Balance Sage were, were impacted uh, for game 5.3. And then there was another uh, category below that, Ranged Quasi-Sustained Damage Dealer. And they're supposed to go down to minus 2.5% of the target DPS. And this is your Virulent Sniper and Dirty Fighting Gunslinger. 
And then finally, there's the range to burst damage dealers, which are designed to go down to negative 5% of the target DPS. And of course, this is the Arsenal Mercenary Gunnery Commando, uh, which were impacted in 5.3. So theoretically, what this means is that all other things being equal, that Hatred Assassins, for example, and Serenity Shadows will do 10% more DPS than an Arsenal Mercenary or Gunnery Commando. But as we all know, things are never equal, and these target ranges are designed to take into account inherent advantages and disadvantages of each discipline. So this doesn't mean that Hatred Assassins and Serenity Shadows will always parse, you know, 10% higher than Arsenal Mercenaries or Gunnery Commandos. And given various boss mechanics, gear, etc., you would expect the gap to be much smaller. But one of the challenges with providing feedback on these changes is that everything is on paper right now. And we haven't seen the changes in action and the combat team hasn't provided any real-world examples for us to exam- examine. For example, one of the criticisms with Arsenal Mercenaries and Gunnery Commando changes is that some believe that the DPS nerfs take it below that minus 5% uh, DPS target. I have no idea if they do, and we may not know until things go live. But what I would find helpful is if the combat team would tell us what the actual numbers should look like on a fight such as the Infernal Council or even a target dummy uh, for each of the DPS disciplines and say best in slot 248 gear. Something that gives us a frame of reference to have the discussion. I think that would be, be very helpful to see. Hey, you know, in this encounter, we want Arsenal mercenaries and gunnery commandos to be doing, you know, let's say, 9,500 DPS, and I'm just just making up that number, and then we could go and look at existing parts and say, well, okay, they're doing this now, and our calculations say they're going to be doing below that, but at least we know where the intended numbers should be, and like I said, have this frame of reference, so that when we, when it goes live, we can then, you know, gather actual data and say, well, look, this is what we're seeing. All right, so other things coming in 5.3, appearances for additional companions can now be customized. We don't know who, but Lana, Senya, Arkin, and Koth are among the companions you can't customize. And I would anticipate a lot of Koth shaming if we were allowed to customize him because he's he's kind of right there with Quinn in terms of uh, people that, you know, uh, companions you, you love to hate. In fact, given some of the nerfs and things that are coming, maybe having Koth be one of the guys that we can dress up like that wouldn't be the worst idea in the world. There is a brand new stronghold with a great view of the ocean. Everything I've seen points to this being Manon, but there has not been an official announcement that it is. In fact, Eric Musco talked about sources of unofficial information in response to a question about the conquest schedule, but it applies to this as well, and here's what he said. If you see information that is not posted on the official site or does not directly reference or link to a post from here, it may not be official. That information could be data mined, etc. As a general rule, we don't provide game information to external sites which can't be readily found on the site slash forums outside of interviews or other special cases. Trust but verify. If you are ever curious about information you see somewhere, feel free to ask about it here, unless, of course, it is clearly data mined. Then ask us in a PM so you don't break any rules. So, since Bioware has not confirmed that the new stronghold is Manan, I offer these as other possibilities. Uh, I think my, my next choice would be Rakata Prime, and I actually would love a stronghold here, especially if there was a beachfront with hooks to put down a kept canopy or beach chairs or something. 
Uh, I'd like that nice tropical uh, environment. So Ricotta Prime wouldn't be a bad place to actually have a stronghold. I mean, think, I mean, it's, 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 it's a beautiful looking planet and, it, you know, it was like Scarif before Scarif. Then there's Ord Mantell. Definitely oceans on Ord Mantell. Not sure how I feel about warheads littering my front lawn though. Uh, there's Alderaan. And yeah, I think Alderaan has oceans and I like the idea of having a palatial estate. Although I'm not too keen on imagining my future generations watching the seas boil as the Death Star blows it all away. Uh, Oricon, as a bad feeling podcast pointed out, there are oceans of lava on Oricon. And who wouldn't want to live in a Darth Vader inspired Mustafarian style castle? I think that would be actually very cool. Of course, Rishi, uh, Rishi, the, the Rishi pirate lair, perhaps in the shape of one of those gale cutters or some piratey spaceship thing going on. That would, that would work. And then I think the last option I could think of is, is Tatooine. And as pointed out by Swotorista, the planet has lots of dune seas. So why wouldn't it be another Tatooine stronghold? Well, my bet is still Manon, but hey, you never know. Now, also coming just in time for the new Stronghold is the ability to search for Stronghold decorations using new filters. Yes, yes, yes. I have been wanting something like this for a long time. I just can't keep all of those categories and exact names of my decorations straight. I can't remember what goes on what hook. And I guarantee you that I am going to find decorations that I never knew that I had. I think this is going to be a wonderful quality of life change, and it just comes just in time for a brand new stronghold. And finally, there should be a fix to crafted 246 relics. They have the incorrect stats that will get adjusted in 5.3. Uh, and you know, no need to recraft the relics. Just hang on to what you've got and they will automatically be adjusted. And also piloting ranks four and five should be fixed so that they apply to all vehicles. And right now they're only applying to creature mounts. So that's it for 5.3. I now wanted to move on to the forum topic of the week, which was bolster in PvP. And Eric Musco had this to say about that. And he said, when we launched Eternal Throne, bolster increased everyone's item rating up to 250, which was eight higher than the highest possible gear rating of 242 at the time. This meant that gear was irrelevant in PvP as bolster made an equal playing field However, it is our design intent that players in all gameplay have some form of gear progression. And so in Game five, game Update 5.1, we lowered the effective bolstering PvP to 232. To compensate for the launch of Tier 4 gear, we increased bolster's effect in PvP to item rating 238. There have been numerous feedback threads on both sides of the fence on this topic, but it seems the larger consensus is that players would like to see a higher bolster rating in PvP to lower the overall gear gap. With that in mind, we want to present three possible options and see what you think. So option one, bolster is equal to item rating 238. This is how it works today. This effect effectively puts you slightly above tier two gear. Option two, bolster is equal to item rating 240. This would place bolster equal to the start of tier three. There would now be an eight rating difference between bolster and the highest tier of gear, 248. For reference, this is identical to the gap that existed for Bolster prior to 5.0. And option three, Bolster is equal to item rating 242. This would place Bolster at the top end of tier three gear, meaning only tier four gear is above it. As far as an answer to the question goes, 
I think bumping it up to 242 is the way to go, especially now that we know there is a double CXP event coming and players will have the opportunity to plow through tiers 1 and tier tier 2 to get those higher ranks. In terms of does the game need bolster for PvP, I think it does. It can take a long time to get through Galactic Command on a character, and it's easier if you have at least one tune at 300 because you can give your other characters hand-me-down gear, but if you don't have a character at 300 or just you know working on your first tune, have a fresh 70, whatever, it can be a very long grind to get through Galactic Command, even with today's CXP rates. Bolster removes a barrier to PvP that was created by Galactic Command. And I've said this before, the removal of PvP-only gear was one of the most significant changes to the game and was predicated on this philosophy. They wanted you to progress your character and get the best gear by doing virtually anything in the game, but they also designed it so that you can't progress your character and get the best gear by doing only one thing in the game. It is inefficient to gear up by doing only PvP, and Bolster ensures that players can participate in PvP and still be competitive while being able to obtain better gear. It allows more people to participate in PvP, which leads to shorter queues and makes for more competitive matches. I love winning, but I don't love going in and just obliterating the opponent. I'll take it over losing, duh, but I want these matches to be fun and I like it when they're close and Bolster helps to make this happen. And I think in today's game, there are very few people that only focus on a single activity, whether it's PvP, operations, what have you. And I think the majority of players in this game participate in multiple activities. And the truth is, were it not for Galactic Command and my desire to chase gear from every possible angle, I would not have gotten into PvP. I just wouldn't have bothered. But here I am now, and I really, really like it. And even if they were to introduce PvP-only gear and kind of go back to the way it was pre-5.0, I'd still participate in PvP and chase that PvP-only gear because I really like it. Finally this week, Charles Boyd hit the forums and dropped a giant lore bomb on us. Regardless of whether or not you like the story, this was pretty awesome on his part as he explained in great detail what Tenebrae, Vitiate, slash Valkorion's master plan was all along. I'm not going to read it, but I will post a link in my show notes, and if you played through Knights of the Fallen Empire and Knights of the Eternal Throne and several other stories, you should definitely read it. What I would like to do is share Charles's reasoning behind the decisions uh, that they made, and then talk about how folks reacted to it all, including Keith Kanig. And after he explained what was going on in the story, Charles said, So all of this leads to a perfectly reasonable question. Why didn't we just come out and say this in the game? Well, first, we have only so much room to tell a story, so we have to pick what seems most crucial. If a detail isn't vital to understanding the plot, or really entertaining or personal, then we don't have time to spend talking about it. Maybe we assessed things wrong, or aimed to cover too much ground in too little time, so too much was left out, perfectly fair feedback, and something I would certainly take moving forward, but in principle there will always be details we don't explain purely because we don't have time to do so. Beyond that, I don't like explaining every single detail of everything anyway. I think it's boring, it's boring to write, and it's it's almost always boring to experience as a player. It's fun to read in a Wikipedia article sometimes, But I don't think it's the job of the story to lay out every single thing. The movies certainly don't do so. Plus, mysteries are fun, 
and I like leaving at least a few things up to the players to work out, theorize, or decide for themselves. Surely it's more fun to leave some things to the imagination. Selfishly, it's good for us writers to leave some things vague so that we can expand or change them later. For example, I never said anything about Tenebrae, Vitiate slash Valkorian's original body anywhere up above, because I think it'd be a pretty cool plot element to explore someday. Maybe we won't get around to it, maybe we will, but if it's, if it's something that we can give a lot of love now and want to do later, I won't hesitate to leave it out so that we have room to do so. Plus, as this thread plainly demonstrates, people don't like it when you retcon past details, so if those details aren't there to retcon, dot dot dot. Lastly, and this is specific to this particular situation, but the only real source that could give the player all of this information directly is Tenebrae slash Vitiate slash Valkorian himself. There's clearly no reason he would tell someone about a lot of these things if his goal is to seduce and destroy them, so we used more indirect means to reference them where it made sense. Now, when I started Knights of the Fallen Empire and I got to the part in Chapter 1 where Darth Marr says, Why travel so far? Why consume every living thing on Zyost and then flee into the depths of wild space? I was like, yeah, why travel so far? Why consume every living, living thing on Zyost and then flee into the depths of wild space? It was something I wanted to know, and it was something I thought would be explained in the story. And it wasn't until I read Charles's post that I fully understood what was going on and connected all of the dots. And I understand what Charles is saying about writing all of that exposition and making it interesting. You know, if they're going to do that, they would need to hire writers from Robot Chicken to make it interesting. And there'd be a scene where some folks are sitting in Valkorian's office with him saying, and then I made them sign the Treaty of Coruscant. Ha, ha, ha. And then his idiot sons would call from the battlefield and he'd go, what do you mean he lost his face? Well, at least I'll be able to tell you apart now. Click. Now, I certainly didn't need full-blown explanations to understand the task at hand, the urgency of what was happening, and what needed to be done in the story. But I think when characters raise these questions directly, there is an expectation that a direct answer will be forthcoming before the story ends. And the game story is very different than a movie story. I mean, our characters are the protagonist. We are the central figure here, which I think is very cool. So as part of this immersive experience, there are things we just can't know to maintain a bit of first-person perspective, although there are cutscenes that provide information that our characters aren't privy to. Bottom line, understanding Tenebrae Vitiate Valkorian's master plan was something I was dying to know, and I thought it would come out in the story, but I still enjoyed most of it, and I was grateful to see it explained by Charles on the forums. And before I move on, I, I saw a comment on the forums where someone suggested, why not add that information in the form of a codex? And I thought that was a great idea. I do read those from time to time, and that would be a good tool to convey some of that backstory. And there are plenty of places to insert lore objects that give us this information. Well, this was all posted on the forums, and because of that, people do what they do, and not all of the feedback was kind. And then Keith came to Charles' defense, and some folks interpreted Keith's comments to mean that you shouldn't be critical of the devs, the game, etc., which, of course, is not the case. And Keith came back, and he did a mea culpa. He pointed to a blog post written by Ralph Coster, who you may remember from SWG fame. And this post by Ralph was a guide, basically, on criticism and feedback, and it was directed towards developers, and it was on the importance of feedback and respecting criticism and ways to both view and react to it. And it was pretty good. In fact, I'm going to put a link to that in my show notes as well. Let me just say this. 
My approach to feedback is this, and hopefully you see it in the way I conduct this podcast. Whenever I'm ready to give feedback or be or or constructive criticism on something, I always ask myself, if I were face-to-face with the developers, is this what I would say, and is this how I would say it? I mean, I don't know about the rest of you, but outside of the game and my guild, there aren't many people that I talk about this stuff with. My wife certainly doesn't want to hear about Star Wars The Old Republic, and the forum should be a place to come and discuss the game with other like-minded people, including those who make it. One of my fondest memories associated with this game happened at the Guild Summit in 2012. I was sitting in the hotel lobby, I was wearing my badge and drinking a beer. And a guy walked by wearing their badge and I said, hey, I see you're here for the for the Guild Summit. And he sat down and we started talking about the game. And a few minutes later, another person came by and asked if they could join in. And before you know it, three people turned to four, four turned to five. And then when all was said and done, there was about 10 of us sitting down, drinking beers and talking about the game, the good, the bad and the ugly. And there are things I don't like about this game. The way you level up companion influence, which I don't think was helped by the recent crew skill changes, for is one. I don't understand why the new dance floor decoration wasn't designed so it could go on a medium, large, or centerpiece hook. My dreams of a digital dance floor on my Yavin 4 Terrace are currently squashed. Why does Vale and Korok on Drome and Koss have a five-freaking-minute spawn timer? If I see one more person refuse to group or another person pop out of stealth just so they could tag him before I do, I'm going to need a brand new keyboard. Feedback and criticism are essential, but just because you don't like something doesn't mean you need to storm the castle in order to get your point across. Whether you're happy with the game or not, remember this. They aren't trying to make a bad game. They are actually trying to make the best possible Star Wars game that they can. Our feedback is an important part of that process. It's a vital part of that process. But you just don't have to storm the castle to to get there. A good friend of mine that I gamed with for a long time once told me this, and I steal this all the time because it's something I believe to be true, and that's this. The job of the developers is not to build the game you want. It's to build the game you'll play. And and that's partly why you don't see them just buffing up all of these classes or keeping the overpowered classes overpowered because at the end of the day, that's not actually going to create a game and an environment that you're going to enjoy playing. We think we will, we think we might, but you know, if the content becomes too easy and you just overpower it and blow everything away, it's not fun. And you're not going to play. You're going to get bored and you're going to walk away. And that's what I mean when I say, you know, the job of the developers is not to build the game you want. It's actually to build the game you'll play. So that's all I have for this week. Uh, There's so much more I wanted to get to, but I do like to keep this at that 30 minute time frame. So I wanted to talk about dark versus light bosses, the new hyper crates, conquest, the state of galactic command. Well, all those will be topics for another day. I'll certainly try and fit some of that in next week along. Hopefully we'll see the game update 5.3 patch notes and can get into a little bit more details about exactly what is coming then. And remember that drops on July the 11th. So let me cue the music and congratulate you on surviving another half hour listening to episode 44 
of the State of the Old Republic podcast. I'm your host, Ted, and I thank you for tuning in. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and Buzzsprout. You can also listen to the show directly from the show site, which is SOTORpodcast.com, and there is an RSS feed where you can subscribe to the podcast directly. If you have a question for the show, email me, SOTORpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet your questions to at SOTORpodcast or send me a direct message, and be sure to follow me on Twitter to get the latest information on the show. Look for episode 45 on July 11th, 2000. 17 and remember the Sith code Kate is a lot.